it has always been about supporting students who have financial need and who are from historically excluded backgrounds and marginalized backgrounds in education abroad. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. We as international educators know that access to funding is a primary barrier to participation in education abroad. And we as practitioners have all been in the position to see our students have to forego the opportunity of a life-changing study abroad experience simply because they can't afford the cost. So on today's episode, I'm excited to face this issue head on. That's right, folks, we're talking funding today. I can't imagine a better person to guide us through this conversation than my dear friend, Angela Schaefer. As the executive director of the Fund for Education Abroad, Angela has an unparalleled lens on this issue and I know believes deeply in the dream of study abroad for all students from her head all the way down to her toes. The mission of the Fund for Education Abroad is to provide scholarships and ongoing support to students who are underrepresented among the U.S. study abroad population. Since 2010, FEA has made life-changing international experiences accessible to all students by supporting students of color, community college, and first-generation college students before, during, and after they participate in education abroad. In 2023, FEA reached a milestone of having supported more than 1,000 students through more than $3 million in funding. Of FEA's scholarship recipients, 74% are first-generation college students, 84% identify as people of color, and 36% are community college students. Like I said, folks, this is game-changing work. I can't wait to pick Angela's brain. You do not want to miss this episode. Stay tuned for what's sure to be a fabulous conversation. Angela Schaefer, welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here. Let's talk funding. We know this is such a critical topic in international education, and the Fund for Education Abroad is doing some big things. But let's start at the beginning. Could you kick us off by giving an overview of your background and how you came to be the executive director at the Fund for Education Abroad? Sure. So I had the opportunity to study abroad when I was in high school. I went to Baltimore City Public Schools. I did not grow up in a family where people had passports or pursued higher education. It was not really ever in the cards for me thinking about college in the first place, but then thinking for sure about getting outside of Baltimore, much less Maryland, much less the U.S., right? I was really fortunate in high school to be able to study abroad. I had really liked um, learning languages before that, and my school had a program, an exchange program with Germany, and we hosted a bunch of students. My family hosted students A lot of the students uh, at my school hosted students from um, different parts of the the world, but we had a German exchange, so we had students from Heidelberg. And I went on that program through the generosity of our alumni foundation and our German teacher really was dedicated to making it possible for all of us, regardless of whether or not we could actually afford to do it ourselves. So I ended up knowing that that was something I wanted to be able to do again. When I went to college, I was able to study abroad again, um, again, through the generosity of scholarships. And it was funny, I ran into that German teacher from high school. It 
grocery store or something and just like, oh, I'm so excited about the, the exchange. How's it going? And this was right after 9-11. And so she's like, well, a lot of these companies that we used to work with that were supporting high schoolers going abroad, they're not really doing that much of that anymore. So I don't know if we're going to be able to make it go at it. And I, for some reason, was just like, I'll figure it out. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I like didn't know how to book flights. I had no idea how to like arrange, you know, match home stays and things like that. But she let me jump in and I did it. And I realized that that was something that I was like very, very passionate about. I ended up being able to work in study abroad at University of Maryland, my first job out of college. And then I worked at Goucher College while it was implementing its study abroad requirement. But then I pivoted a little bit and went to work at an international exchange nonprofit. I was doing a lot of work with foreign governments like in Japan and India and also doing a lot of work with the State Department. And I was the head of program development. And so it was my job to fake up programs, but also to figure out how to fund them. And so I became a grant writer doing a lot of grants. I wasn't like something I went and got a degree in or anything. I just started writing grants. And that's how I learned the ropes of it, figuring out like stewardship of funders and all of that. And I was there for about five years, ended up doing my own thing for a little while, became a freelance grant writer and working with a lot of social justice organizations based in Baltimore, my favorite place in the world, despite my I'm thankful. So I'm so thankful I've been able to travel everywhere, but I love my hometown. And when this opportunity came up, it was just this weird combination of like study abroad and fundraising and donor stewardship and partnership building and was something that I happened to have like this weird pathway where I had a little bit of all of that combined. So I was really, really, really lucky to land at FEA um, where I'm able to draw on a lot of those skills all the time. You have such a unique background. It really has, you know, set you up to be the the perfect executive director, if I may, of FEA. So, so thank you for thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Now let's dig into FEA a bit more. What is the Fund for Education Abroad and what is its origin story? So the Fund for Education Abroad is a nonprofit organization. We are fully philanthropic, meaning we survive on donations and partnerships and raising our own funds, um, so we're not government-sponsored. So we were founded back in 2010. The president of academic travel abroad, Dave Perry, from what I understand, and, and they may have a, a different take on this, but um, Kate Simpson, who is now the president of academic travel abroad, and Mark Lenhart, who's the executive director of CET academic programs, Dave Perry basically was like, hey, I want to do scholarships for students. You know, we're arranging travel for people all over the world. And we should use some of the, the profit we're making from that to, to support students who otherwise won't be able to have these experiences, be able to um, travel internationally and study internationally. And so Kate and Mark were like, okay, we got it. We'll figure this out. So I believe they started exploring it in like 2008. We are officially founded in 2010. We sent our first cohort of seven scholars abroad in 2011, which doesn't sound like a lot now given what our cohort sizes are but as somebody who has raised money for organizations that are, are just newly founded the, the ability that we had to fund even seven only a, a year after we were established is a pretty big deal and we were always dedicated to to supporting students who were historically excluded who were underrepresented in ed abroad that obviously the definition or the way that we have rather interpreted that as an organization has kind of changed over time but it has always been about 
supporting students who have financial need and who are historically excluded or from historically excluded backgrounds and marginalized backgrounds in education abroad. And so now we're entering our 14th year, which is a, a big deal. And it's just amazing to see how much we've grown and how much support we have gotten from international education community, but also so many people outside of our community as well. It's just every day I come to do this work and it's so heartwarming to see how many people are dedicated to supporting the scholars that we work with. As you mentioned earlier, FEA is a fully philanthropic and independent organization. What are some of the benefits of this model? There are things that as a fully philanthropic organization, we can give students scholarships. They they sometimes are like, oh, am I allowed to study here? And we're like, well, listen, if you've made the case to us, like, it's not government funding. It's not restricted. So you can take our scholarships where you want to go as long as you are getting credit for it in some capacity. So one of the benefits of that model was obviously the last couple of years have been anything but normal for our field, for students who want to go, for our foreign partners in institutions across the world. Like nothing has been normal, right? You, you know this. I know this. I'm sure everybody across this podcast listening knows this. When the State Department travel warnings and things were coming up, particularly as a result of the pandemic, of the COVID pandemic, we were able to support some students to go abroad to places that were, you know, level four, whatever it was that it now granted if the student was relying on other federal aid from their institution, which most of our students are. That was challenging. But we for our scholarships, because we are not government funded, we don't need to restrict our funding going out in that way. Even though some of the students weren't able to stay through their initial plans, they ended up going with an alternate program or something like that. One of the things was that, you know, they didn't even, it, depending on the type of funding they received or if they were relying on like federal loans, they didn't even know where to turn to get advice about where they could go or where they could take their funds. And so, we ended up working with a lot of students during that time, sort of guiding them and advising them through not giving them advice on what to do, but rather guiding them through how to make the decisions that were um, for them going to be in their best interest financially. A lot of what we do is financial literacy work, which is a whole other thing. Um, but I, that's another thing where, again, because we are funded by lots of different partners and lots of private donors, we can sort of take a, a neutral ground on, you know, we don't have to say to students like, you shouldn't take this loan or you should do this or you shouldn't do that. We can give students very sort of neutral but helpful advice. And I think quite a few of our applicants and, and our scholars have come to look for that kind of support in us. That's great. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know any of that. So thank you for thank you for sharing, Angie. Part of the FEA works towards this goal is of course by engaging with access partners. What does that look like and how are these partnerships mutually beneficial? So our access partnership, it's a program that I am just so proud of and it's so innovative. I know that the reason that we started moving in the direction of access partnerships was, again, I think that the people who most know the benefits of study abroad for everybody are the people who do this work and see this, right? You and me and all of our thousands and thousands and thousands of colleagues across the world. But even we have a harder time sometimes being like, you should support study abroad because 
because as you know, as I know, like I still 20 something years after I studied abroad in college, well, here and there be like, wow, I'm like connecting this to something I learned, right? So most of our supporters, um, at least in our first decade, were really people from the field. And while I wish we had more gazillionaires too in this field, it's not like most international education professionals have huge capacity as donors, right? But we knew there was support from across the field for the work we were doing and to support a fully philanthropic organization like FEA and support the scholars that we were finding coming to us for funding. So Martha Johnson, who had been chair of the board of trustees and FEA worked with FEA staff and other trustees to really think about what this would look like to leverage that support in a greater way. And so the idea of access partnerships were born. So access partnerships are partnerships with uh, U.S.-based international education organizations, or they don't even have to be U.S.-based, but most of them are here, and um, institutions abroad. So University of Auckland, for example, University of Sydney, many institutions in Ireland, it's for us to partner and be able to dedicate scholarship funds for students going through those programs and also retain some of the funding for us as an organization so that we can use it for programming to support students before, during, and after their study abroad experiences and to exist, right? I'm, we're a tiny organization. We do a lot with our three staff and the intern we typically have every semester, but we're really small, but we still have to pay salaries. You know, we still have to have computers and things. So the Access Partnership Program allows the FEA to benefit in that way. We have dedicated scholarship funds for students who are going on those programs, which a lot of our applicants are going on those programs anyway. And it allows us to have some funding for our own organizational benefit. And for the access partners, the benefit I think lies in one, being part of a group of colleagues that, for example, during the, the COVID pandemic, you know, they would get together and they would just have these discussions where you're not competitors in this space. You're all here to support the idea of more inclusive and accessible study abroad. What does that look like in a pandemic? And also, like, how's how's your mom? What's it like being shut in with their this person? And it just was this a uh, this wonderful space where I think everybody who you know we're all friends and, and colleagues and rub elbows at you know NASA receptions and things like that. But like to be able to to get together with people who there's this driving force for this passion of what FEA is doing, but also get to just talk about how things are impacting your organizations uh, in a more neutral setting was really welcome. I also think that our access partners obviously, hopefully, feel they're benefiting from diversifying their own programs and bringing new voices to the programs that otherwise may not have been able to participate. Um, and that looks different for each of our access partners, right? So we really take time to get to know, like, Maybe, you know, your priority is to engage more with community college students. Maybe another program provider's priority is to get students who are coming from institutions in a certain region of the U.S. Maybe another's is to get more students of, of color or more students who are first-generation students. Um, we've had more of our partners coming to us and saying, hey, you know, we, we've noticed we are starting to see some interest, initial interest from um, adult learners, you know, people who maybe return to school after a little while, but we're, we're not real sure like how to support those students. And so what can we 
what are you all doing? What are you seeing those students say in their scholarship essays? And what are their concerns about study abroad? And so I, I believe and I hope our access partners feel like they're benefiting from not just the, the community and not just the, the students who are ultimately receiving their scholarships, but from the knowledge base we at FEA now have from working with such a diverse array of scholars and applicants that the access partners feel like they can come to us and, and ask for guidance in working with different populations. How do institutions or organizations go about partnering with FEA? Lots of different ways. So we have our access partnership program, and that's a, a really established partnership. Um, there's different levels that people can come in on it. Um, and then we, of course, will we will work with a, a partner to see what a level is that makes sense for them. We know people are still digging out of what, you know, 2020 and 2021 meant for our field. And so we do work with organizations to figure out, does, does an access partnership make sense? Would it make sense to maybe sponsor a program that we're doing about, you know, post-grad opportunities abroad? Would it make sense to sponsor an FEA event where you still, you know, get to network with people from the field? You're not technically an access partner, but you're supporting our work and you're supporting our scholars and our alumni, and you're supporting other colleagues in the field in being able to, to access some of the knowledge that FEA has to share. We've had organizations come to us and just say, like, we want to do something. What does that look like for us? This is where some of my background in program development has helped a little bit, where I'm like, all right, let's not think about this from like a, no, you don't fit into this model we created, but rather, what does, what does our work look like for you? And what could your look, work look like for us? And how ultimately do we keep all of the work we're doing centered on the students we're trying to support? FEA takes a comprehensive and somewhat unique approach to considering a student's financial need along with demographics and their academic plan. What should our listeners know about this approach, how it's designed to illustrate the gap in funding for students, and how it fills a need in our field? Again, this is something I'm very proud of that we've done as an organization. We take into account quite a few ways of students demonstrating need. And we interpret need not just as your EFC, which, by the way, of course, all this stuff is going to change now that FAFSA is changing. So like, <laughs> we'll be back to the, we should just, you should just call me back next month and ask me what we're doing and now. But right now, you know, we, we do take into account EFC. We take into account if a student receives a Pell Grant or not. We take into account other types of aid they receive. But we also take into account students' loans and unmet need. And that is something that I'm really proud that we have figured out a way to do that. It is not perfect. It is a constant work in progress, how we come back and evaluate financial need. But I do think loans are really important. What we were seeing was a lot of students that had if you were only using their expected family contribution from the FAFSA student aid report and you were only using if they received a Pell or not as the way to sort of score financial need, not my favorite way of saying it, but that's what we got, <laughs> then you're missing a little bit more of the story. What we were seeing is we started having students submit budgets with their financial form and their application with FEA. And we started seeing that Students who actually sometimes scored really high in terms of having very low EFC and a high level of a Pell Grant, they received a lot of other scholarships, merit and need-based, and they actually didn't have quite as much need as some students who maybe missed the Pell by like 
$50 of their EFC, or, you know, they had maxed out other types of aid, or they had a very medium sort of like expected family contribution, but they didn't, they were relying so heavily on loans to make higher ed work for them. And so we looked, we started looking at it, not just as like who has financial need, but also who can we help to avoid going into more debt as they decide to go on a study abroad program. That's why we are very invested in making sure we're looking at the student's whole financial picture and the loans, taking into account loans as an indicator of need and taking into account unmet need has allowed us to sort of expand. And what we hope this ultimately is doing is that we're not saying to other scholarship organizations, change your change the way you do it. I don't want them to. What we want to do is make sure we're doing it a little differently. So we're not awarding the same students who are getting a Freeman or a Gilman or other types of like Pell matches necessarily from the programs they're going on. That's our goal. And I'm really proud of the work we've put into that. And I'm really proud that we're dedicated to continuing to look at that. Every cohort, every application is like, oh, we are like, is this the right thing to do? And should we tweak it? And that's the other piece, Zach, about being a fully independent organization. Of course, we have a board. Of course, we have access partners. Of course, we have the access advisory board. We have lots of people we can go to to ask, is this the right move? But we have the ability to change it when we need to. And that is very key in keeping up with these times because they're changing so crazily and so fast. Absolutely. I, I love how you articulated that. And thank you for sharing. You know, as international educators, Angie, we know that funding is uniquely pivotal in a student's ability to study abroad. What makes you passionate about access? It's probably about a third my own story. Um, so again, not being a fly girl and traveling the world as a dancer, <laughs> but being able to, I mean, even before I went, seeing what it was like for my family to host international students in our little tiny row house in Baltimore and have them ride the, at the time, horrendous public bus with me through some pretty bad neighborhoods to a good school, but still, you know, a, a city public school. Um, like getting to see what it was like for my mom and my dad and my family to like talk to people, you know, whose English wasn't their first language and, and talking with them about things like, you know, what's it like here? What's it like there? And and just seeing kind of the, the magic that happened when our families created these relationships, having really like not a lot in common on the surface, that to me is access and and is is engagement beyond what you know people might have set their expectations at right i don't think my parents ever thought they were going to be able to be trading postcards with uh, other families in germany and things and so being able to see that but then experiencing obviously on my own that was really important um i realized that there was a whole big world outside of baltimore i, I didn't have to like quit high school and just have like kids immediately and you know, that that there were other things that I could do differently. And that to me was sort of the power of access and seeing a greater world. Because it also made me much more passionate about coming back to Baltimore and making it a city that I really wanted to be in and, and have my own family and kids in, right? So that's probably like a third of it. But I also think that a third of it is the stories that I have been able to, like the students I've gotten to meet 
and the people, not just students, because a lot of my work was outside of higher ed when I was working in international exchange, getting to meet just so many people across the world and meeting sometimes them and talking about what they kind of forecast as their futures and thinking like if they just got out to see the bigger world, what would this look like for them? And getting to talk with the scholars that we talk with all the time. We get to work with parents. We get to work with like people who have returned to school, people whose trajectories have just not been super smooth and easy pathways, right? That this going abroad is the, is something that just always allows people to kind of recalibrate and reconsider the possibilities of their future. And then I think the last third in terms of access and and why I'm so passionate about this is seeing that there is there are so many people who want this for uh, for so many more people, right? We have really generous donors, we have really generous partners, and they may not even, you know, understand necessarily like why it's important for us, for example, to have a rainbow scholarship specifically, or why it's important for us to support first-generation college students or community college students, but they're still willing to invest in us and invest in that goal. And that to me is really inspiring because it allows me to see that like we have people who trust us to and trust our, our scholars. They, they just know that for some reason, this is going to benefit them in the future and it's going to make the world hopefully a better place. And that's what kind of keeps us going. As someone who focuses on funding every day, Angie, I know you have a unique perspective on the field as a whole in terms of affordability, access, and who gets to study abroad. Where do you see progress being made, barriers coming down, and where do we have room to grow? I think it's really important to stress that there, there is progress being made. We are getting more questions about what partnership looks like and how can I be involved in this. And it's great to see that, especially because I know that the pandemic just changed the plans and trajectories for so many different organizations and so many people. You can't really focus on the field without focusing on the wider world of higher ed and how those costs have become prohibitive in the U.S. especially, right? There is more attention being drawn to this, good or bad, but, you know, as a result of the Supreme Court's decision regarding student debt relief, um, people really talking about, like, does school need to cost this much? And what, what does education mean if it's so prohibitive that not everybody can access it? We really need to be thinking about, you know, the inflated costs of education, higher education here in the U.S., um, looking at the ways that other countries are doing it, looking at models of, of education that might be able to be more accessible to more people. A lot of it is going to mean that our definition of education expands in the future and our definition of access and dropping some of the judgment around certain kinds of education, whether that's virtual, whether that's community college, some of the stigmas that exist. A lot of that is totally a result of the way that we've approached higher ed in, in the U.S. and a way that we need to kind of dismantle some of that moving forward. With that being said, one of the things that we are starting to see in terms of, of progress and barriers coming down is people are starting to realize that we have maybe had a little bit of a 
like a limited concept or definition of what education abroad looks like and when it has to take place. And for me, this is a big driver because it's, you know, and probably gonna get in trouble for saying this because we are a scholarship organization that supports undergraduates who want to study abroad for credit, right? Even ourselves, we're kind of buying into this like semi-narrow definition and with good reason, we are, we do not have as much money as I wish we had to give away. So we can't really expand too, too much without jeopardizing our our mission of what we were actually built to do. However, I do think that something that people don't think enough about is that study abroad and education abroad can happen much more along like your spectrum of, of life, right? I got to go in high school and it was extraordinarily like rewarding and meaningful. And it was that experience with me and a lot of my friends that were able to go that really changed a lot about, I think, the way we led our lives. And it was early. It was K through 12. There's, of course, like lots of options out there in education abroad right now for a very typical undergraduate student, right? But like most of my international experience has actually been as a grad student or afterwards as a professional even. There's so many different ways to do work abroad and internships abroad or bring, you know, people to the U.S. and learning from them. And so I think a lot about the models we have and where we could make these opportunities available to people on a lifelong learning spectrum. I believe that those are probably going to be pretty key in reducing costs and making um, the types of programming more accessible to, to students and to people in general. You know, I think we have to kind of break outside of this mold and this definition that we've formed of study abroad and education abroad, but it will be very worthwhile and, and if, if we're able to do that. And I know a lot of organizations are, are starting that work. I'm excited to see where we land in a few years with some of those initiatives. As our listeners will know, Angie, we love us a success story here on the pod. Could you tell us about an initiative or partnership at FEA of which you are particularly proud? I mean, I would actually say something that we're, I'm really proud of is if you're looking at our statistics, we're like legit flipping the script on who is going abroad. I want to do it at a, at a higher level with more lives impacted, but I'm really proud of our statistics. I, I believe around 10% or under of students who study abroad are considered our first-gen students, and that is not the case with FEA. We are, let's say, 74% first-gen college students as of our last cohort. I think somewhere around 30% or under is our students who identify as people of color. BIPOC students, and we are 84% people of color who have received our scholarship. And then community college students, I think it's re it's quite low. It's like 0.4% of study abroad students, again, in the way that it's defined and the data is collected, are 0.4% uh, are community college students, and FE is about 36% community college students. And so I'm just so like, heartened and inspired by these numbers. I I love an Excel sheet, I will say, but I'm usually not somebody who gets caught up in the stats, right? And I don't like thinking of students as stats. I don't like thinking of our scholars as stats because it's really the stories behind these that you wouldn't even know from looking at those stats. One of the students that I'm the most proud of 
is a student. It's really funny. We actually have a married couple that received our scholarship in different cohorts, and we did not know when we were making the awards, right? We have lots of tons of volunteer reviewers that like actually allow FEA to exist because we could never do all this on our own. And our volunteer reviewers are amazing and they are relied upon heavily to make very like neutral ground decisions about who gets our scholarships. And yes, this um, this uh, wife of a, a scholar of ours in the past, so an FEA alum, had applied and received a scholarship. And this uh, this woman is a veteran was over the age of 25 and was a parent. And so I talked with her because she called me and I could tell she had some questions. She's like, um, and she had been, by the way, a community college student and she was a first-gen college student and she was a person of color. She called and she, I just tell, she was like, I want to accept the award, but just like, I'm just like not sure how I'm going to do this. And so I got to talk with her about what it's like to plan logistically for your kids to be, you know, taken care of so you can take care of this experience for yourself. And, you know, what was it that was really a barrier for her? Something that our scholarship hopefully could help with, but also recognizing like a lot of barriers are not just financial for the students we're working with. You know, they are thinking about their families. They are thinking about logistics. They're thinking about can they take time off of their job to, to go do this opportunity? And so... When I think about our statistics, which I am really proud of, I like think about the stories of the students behind these statistics that don't even come into these. Like I want to collect data on how many students of ours have been parents. I want to collect data on how many are, are over the age of 25 and how many have taken a break from school and have come back. How many are veterans? Um, how many identify as differently abled or disabled? I want to Though that's some of the data I do want to dive into, but I think about those stories when I when I think about the work we're doing. And she was able to go. Her name is Julia. She has a blog on our website. She went to Korea, South Korea. She had an amazing experience. It. She missed her kids, and I could very much relate to that. Having ditched my kids a couple of days for international opportunities, um, I did a Fulbright for a month while they were about three and five or two and four or something like that. So I could relate to like her feelings in this, but it was just so inspiring. She went and she came back and now we have this, this couple raising the next generation of kids that had these experiences and will are changed by them. And the, that's who I think about. That's who gets me going when we have a week like last week where like our ID wasn't working and our website it went down for a second. And da, 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 da. That's what makes me come and do this work every day. I couldn't agree more that that the stories are what keep us going. But at the same time, the numbers don't lie. And the statistics that you just shared there are incredibly impressive. So congratulations to you and, and to your team. Because like I said earlier, it's truly game-changing work that, that, that you're all engaged in over at FEA. One of the joys of following students in their study abroad journey, as you know, is the development we get to witness as our students grow and change. How does FEA engage with alumni in meaningful ways? This is something that we are striving to do on a more regular basis. So I think one of the, I'll start with saying some of the challenges of engaging only because I think that's a reality for a lot of us in this field. As many as our, our access partners have talked to them, like, ah, like, how do you guys do it? They're like, how, how do you do it? <laughs> we do try to stay in touch with our alum. We invite them to events. We have them come speak at our gala every year. 
We um, encourage them to engage with us on social media and let us know what they're up to. We do send surveys out um, and we try to keep them short because we know they're busy. But we also know that students are uh, our alumni and students who have, have gotten a few scholarships. They tend to be students who are pretty involved in lots of different things. And they have a lot of people asking them for their time. And we know, you know, what we give is a scholarship and support, but we, um, the students are not from the same institution. They're not going to the same places. They're not going to the same programs. They're not necessarily the, coming from the same backgrounds demographically or regionally or whatever. So it's harder sometimes to like get them to kind of feel like they're part of something that unifies them. And the FEA scholarship is that. So we've started to realize that we, in order to continue to engaging with, to engage with our alumni, we have to really start working with them at a level they feel like they have a greater connection to us even before they go. So it's one of the reasons that we are so dedicated to supporting them and talking with them and allowing them to call us whenever about random questions, especially financial ones. We do connect students with uh, peer mentors. So one of the things we ask our alumni is if they want to work with our outgoing students, the FEA scholars who are, are heading out, for example, for spring, the spring 2024 cohort, I believe we have 13 or 14 pairs we've matched up with a lot of different things in the mix in terms of how we do the matching. So in some cases, a student is going to a place that we have an alumni that just got back from there. Or maybe they have the same home institution here in the U.S. Or maybe they both identify as rainbow scholars who, so LGBTQ scholars who want to talk about what that, you know, that part of their identity would look like abroad and those kinds of things. So we we're try, we try to be intentional with how we connect the alumni with our outgoing scholars. And we have found that students on both sides, so students who engage with the peer mentorship and students who are peer mentors tend to be more invested and involved. When we send them an email, they don't ignore it. When we ask them to do a survey, they don't ignore it. It's less about, you know, FEA, 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 and more about, wow, like, I'm really proud of myself for doing this. And this is an organization and partners and donors who recognize that. And so, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna keep telling my story because I think it'll inspire others to pursue this pathway of study abroad and in abroad, but it'll also keep this organization going and this organization will um, allow other people to be able to afford this opportunity. Terrific. Thank you for sharing that. I want to think systemically for a moment. Angie, if you had a magic wand, what is one thing that you would change about funding and education abroad? We should not be waiting until students are in three, four, five years of higher ed to be like, that's it. This is when you go. This is where you go. This is what you do. This is how you do it. And this is, you have to do it like this. Really what it comes down to is like, there's a pressure of basically three semesters during which you could do something. Even and, and I'm including summer and winter term and short term things, right? I think a piece of this is is thinking systemically about the structure of that abroad. You know, where could we find opportunities that everyone could potentially have along a bigger spectrum? Make make more sense for them than trying to go just while they're in a like four-year institution, right? So maybe that does look like a gap experience for some for some students. Maybe that looks like a virtual opportunity 
that they then, you know, get to have people come visit them here in the U.S. from that opportunity where they get to go overseas and meet people they worked with on a virtual opportunity. For many students, maybe it means, you know, a, a week-long program for spring break that ends up getting them confident enough and to, to feel like they could pursue something longer. Maybe it means they get through community college and then they get through their two years at an, a higher ed institution and a university, get their bachelor's degree, and then they, you know, think about doing something in grad school as a Fulbright. So I think a lot of it comes down to systemically the way that we think about higher education, but also the way that we think about study abroad in that. I know a lot of people in the tech sector and I, I love them all dearly. And I hear their conversations about like, oh, yeah, we just got like this venture funding or we just got into this series of funding. And and I think about sometimes how frustrated I get because, you know, I was used to writing grants asking for like $12,000 to do something internationally, right? And, and the, the hoops I had to jump through because for some reason, sometimes people are more willing to put 10, 15, $20 million into like, in apps that makes you look like an avocado than they are into study abroad and, and education. And I know that that sounds kind of funny, but like, I don't, I get, I think a big, my magic wand potentially, my magic wand moment would be to show the long-term impact of an international opportunity that someone was able to take advantage of and how it changed their life. Like, I can tell my story over and over and over. But like I said, even I still am realizing the benefits of my opportunities that I was able to have, like, 20-something years down the road, right? And I don't think that we necessarily as a field have been able to do that in a way that, like, for some reason makes people realize this is worth the investment. But I also think that we sometimes just don't even, like, the, the students that we support through these opportunities don't always know how to connect things either. And so I just wish there was a way to say, this is how it pays off, right? And not just for the student, because I think a lot of the times when we frame the benefits of study abroad, we're talking about it'll get you a job, it'll get you this, it'll get you that. You'll have, be able to navigate the workplace easier. You'll be able to do this. But like, what's the benefit to society of that? And is that more beneficial than, you know, being able to like make your face look like an avocado? I would surely hope so. But it's about that messaging. And so my magic model would be like, look, this is what your $10 million will get us. And and this is why I want you to invest. This is not, this is not a gift. This is an investment in our future. We will have more diplomatic people. We will have more people who are willing to stand up for what's right. We will have more people with connections across the world to the extent where they don't want war to be happening anyway, anywhere because they care about those people. That is my, if I get that wand, I'm, I'm bringing it. I'm bringing it. <laughs> Somebody get Angie a wand. <laughs> you know, study abroad makes the world a better, more compassionate place, one student at a time, doesn't it? A and you all are really doing the work over there at, at FEA. And so we're about out of time. So I just have one more question for you, my friend, as we as we begin to wrap up here. As you think about education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? I see, you know, how hard so many of our colleagues are working to make Ed Abroad a reality for so many people. I think about people, you know, just making space for stories from 
FEA scholars, from students generally who are going abroad, and and from each other as a field. Um, it's really hard to ignore some of these stories. It's it's so inspiring just to hear, like I said, from the student that I talked to who's a parent or our students, some of the FEA scholars that came to our gala talking about, you know, realizing how much bigger the world is than themselves and making sure that they want to do things in a way that benefits so many people outside of them. I see people really dedicated to this. We hear from a lot of people and organizations right now, how can we partner with you to do this? Um, and getting back to the the earlier point, Zach, about like some people don't even know why this is important. Like they don't really get it, but they're beyond the point where they have to understand it to, to support it. And that is what is driving all of my hope that by even in a year or two, we'll be in a place where those statistics are going to change and not just FEA statistics, that the field overall is going to change and we'll all be better people for it. I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Angela Schaefer, what a joyful conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was so great to talk with you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World's Rights colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives or Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together. Thank you.